Hi, and welcome to F-World, the fragility podcast. Together with guests from around the world, we explore how fragility manifests across economics, politics, security, culture, development, and the environment in order to see how we can build a more resilient future. We're your hosts. I'm Johan Bjurman Bergman. This is Mihaela Karste and Paul Biska. And today we're speaking to Catherine Marshall. Catherine was one of the first international development experts to work on the critical importance of a religion in global development. And today, she's one of the world's foremost experts on the nexus between faith and ethics in development. And she's written several seminal books on these topics. Here's one of them. From 1971 to 2006, Catherine worked at the World Bank, where she became a pioneer for women in international development, serving multiple stints as country director both in the Sahel and Southern Africa, leading the bank's work in some of the world's most fragile and poor nations. In 2000, she was appointed by World Bank President Jim Wolfenson to lead the bank's Faith, Values and Ethics Initiative. Her work at the intersection of faith and development helped create the World Faith Development Dialogue, and she's today its executive director. She's also Vice President of the G20 Interfaith Forum, which brings together religious institutions around the annual G20 meetings. For several years, she was a core member of the World Economic Forum Council of 100, an initiative to advance the understanding between the Islamic world and the West, and she has been a trustee of the Princeton University. Catherine is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a senior fellow at Georgetown's Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace and World Affairs. And this year, she celebrates five decades in service of the world's poorest people. She is a mentor, and she was my professor at Georgetown. Welcome to the F-World Podcast, Catherine. Thank you. Uh, thank you for welcoming me. It's great to have you with us. And we would just like to kick us off by asking about your story. What was your journey from the start to the World Bank? And what were some of the most formative experiences that led you to work uh, in service of the world's poorest people? Uh, well, it's, as always, a rather a long story. And to some extent, I trace some of my interest in these kinds of issues to reading a biography of Albert Schweitzer. When I was maybe eight or nine years old, uh, I wrote him a letter offering to come immediately uh, to uh, Central Africa. Um, and I have to say that when my father died, I found the letter in a book, um, so he had never sent it. Uh, so the idea of, of service was deeply ingrained in my family. But more specifically, my father moved to Ibadan, Nigeria in 1961, the year after independence. Uh, he was working primarily on public administration. Uh, and it was a heady period of excitement of new countries coming into being Ibadan was a fascinating city then. I'm sure it still is. Um, described sometimes as the largest village in Africa with over a million people. Uh, and I was bitten by the bug uh, there. Uh, so continued through school and, and college with at least some interest and then went to a public policy school uh, at Princeton Worked for a while as a consultant, and then I have to say more or less tumbled into the World Bank. Uh, I, it was not my dream or my plan 
but uh, I started working there as an intern, then as a consultant, and then for the United States Executive Director, uh, and basically was there for over 35 years. So that's, in a way, the story of how I got into it. That's an incredible story. Um, what was it like for you to come into the World Bank as a woman in 1971? What was that experience like? At that point, um, I don't know exactly what the statistics were, but it wasn't far off 50-50 male-female. Uh, but it was pretty much 100% males at the top. And you still had the secretarial profession, which was all women. So basically, as you went down the hierarchy, um, the numbers of women increased and the numbers of men declined. So it was, I was at the time uh, pushing the boundaries, shall we say, or as we would now say, um, pushing the ceiling uh, and uh, was, was something of a pioneer in the sense of being the first to do many of the things, both um, in the, in the work I was doing initially on agriculture in the, in the boardroom uh, and then as a, as a team leader, uh, as a manager, a division chief, and then as a director. Uh, so it was always, I, and you always had the sense that people were a little bit afraid of what these strange creatures, women, would do when they were put into those positions. I think one of the interesting things at that point was that you were dealing both with new reflections and new ideas about women as actors in development. So thinking about strategies, uh, trying to get data, um, slowly dawning awareness of the importance of girls' education, etc. But at the same time, you were dealing with issues of women within the World Bank itself, including in leadership positions. Uh, there was, I think, a remarkable story that the first women who were promoted to management positions, of which I was obviously one, really formed a very tight-knit group. Um, and we decided that our first reaction was when someone said, well, there's a conference on women, will you go? We'd say, that's not my job. That's not what I do. But then we eventually decided that if we did not, as a group, defend both the roles of women within the institution and the roles of women in development, who would? Uh, and so we came to work quite closely together and I think uh, really was formed some kind of a model of, um, of an interest group, so to speak. Because what I can say is that we had no law to guide us. There was no sort of anti-discrimination uh, and basically, um, the external um, lobbies coming from member governments of the World Bank were, were, shall we say, not very strong. It was not the 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 like-minded countries of which, of course, the Nordic countries were uh, at the fore. Uh, were were obviously pushing for it, but but it was not a high priority. Right. And, and you've also written, as you mentioned, um, the role of women, not just within the bank, but also, of course, women in the work in the field, uh, the role of women um, as, as actors within development and in peace building. 
um, and you've written a book on this topic um, that that really describes how you know, women, while not being at the root of a lot of conflicts, often are at the receiving end of these conflicts. Um, so what were some of the things that, that you discovered as you worked and wrote this book about how this situation might be improved? The questions about women's role and roles in peace building has, of course, become quite a prominent issue uh, in peace building with the United Nations Resolution 1325 and the really very dramatic data on how few women actually sit at peace tables and are recognized as playing critical roles uh, in peace building. Um, so that, of course, in itself is a fascinating subject, and it does uh, highlight both the vulnerability of women in conflict situations, the suffering, uh, the disproportionate impact, which we're also seeing now, by the way, on the COVID crisis on women. Uh, but at the same time, their really often distinctive roles in keeping communities together, what we now call resilience, uh, but also in peace building. Uh, the specific research project that I did with colleagues from the U.S. Institute of Peace was looking at a specific dimension, uh, which was the role that women who had a religious inspiration played, were playing and do play uh, in work for peace. Uh, some are, are fairly uh, visible, some of the feisty nuns who are remarkably courageous. We're seeing that even now in Myanmar, uh, in Colombia, um, and in other countries. Uh, but there was a specific problem there that takes me to my later work, uh, which has been dominated by the question of what's religion got to do with it. Uh, and that was the tensions that exist not everywhere, but in many places between feminist groups uh, and groups that are more religious. And the, uh, the feminist groups have tended in many places to be quite suspicious of religion overall. And therefore, women who profess a, an outward, an outward religion, um, and for the religious women who share this, a general skepticism about the secular and its uh, unethical, um, amoral, etc. approaches to what they see as the problems. So one of the purposes of the book uh, was to take people who are triply invisible, which is these women who come from a religious setting, uh, who are not recognized by their own religions, who are not recognized by the feminists, and who are not recognized by the sort of peace building field uh, and highlight some of the remarkable work that some of them are doing. I'm really curious about how and why did you start working on issues related to religion? Is this something you had a lot of knowledge about? Um, it's, it's one of those accidents of history <laughs> where I describe essentially being drafted 
Uh, I was working on the East Asia crisis on social policy and governance issues uh, when Jim Wolfenson, who was the president of the World Bank, asked me to help him uh, in starting uh, a new institution that would help to bridge the divides between development institutions and religious institutions. Uh, you didn't basically say no to Wolfenson on something like that, but it was understood that this was a temporary assignment, and I had no real background in it except what I would describe as insatiable curiosity uh, and uh, interest in learning. Uh, but the story changed because Jim Wolfenson, with a few leaders, including George Carey, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Aga Khan, um, Prince uh, Hassan of Jordan, um, Jeff Solomon, who was a Jewish leader, Echegaray, uh, Cardinal Echegaray from the Vatican, he, they had started a dialogue process, uh, and I was simply to translate it into an institutional form. But basically, all hell broke loose at, in the World Bank Board of Directors, uh, with Wolfenson often fond of saying that it was uh, 184 member countries to zero in favor of the, uh, of the religion initiative. So what that forced me to do was to speak to the representatives of all those countries to try to understand what it was that was happening. This was before 9-11. So it was a time when very few development professionals really spoke about or thought much about religion. So it was an adventure. And there were a number of different issues. I mean, some of them were very personal. The, there was a sense that Wolfenson was taking the World Bank into many new directions that it didn't really belong in. Um, there was active hostility to religion. Um, the French executive director had explicit instructions to vote against anything that had to do with religion. And I do remember clearly the Dutch uh, executive director making a comment that I needed to be fired uh, because of the work. So but it was so it was a wide variety of different concerns that they had. But the upshot of it was that I, first of all, became fascinated by the topic, realized that what was at stake was a large number of large blind spots, things that I had not seen when I had been working, things I hadn't understood, voices I had not heard. Uh, but it was also fascinating because it took the discussion, uh, and in many ways the bank itself, into an area of ethics that was different from the way ethics was understood then, which was basically corruption and stealing. So it was much more these fundamental questions about what is development about, uh, how, are, how are these different economic models um, affecting people's lives. Uh, it was at a time when there was a growing awareness that religion, that religion was critically important to many poor people and many poor communities. Uh, the Voices of the Poor study that had looked, that had, I think 64,000 people were involved in the, um, in the explorations. That was one of the surprise findings. 
was the focus of, of many of these communities on the religious dimension. So gradually I got sucked deeper and deeper in, and then 9-11 happened uh, with the attack on the World Trade Center. And of course, the conversation about religion changed dramatically overnight. And of course, there were also terrible things in Europe, in Spain, in the UK, um, in the Middle East, uh, in Indonesia. Um, but in general, there was um, a keen interest. I think right after 9-11, the best-selling book was the Koran for a while. So um, the whole question of what's religion got to do with it took on some new dimensions. And I got deeper and deeper into it. I had a wonderful title for a while, which was Director on Faith. Uh, but because of the controversy, the actual title and the unit was changed to Development Dialogue on Values and Ethics. Uh, and I sat for a long time in the president's office and then moved to some other other parts of the bank. Um, and then when Wolfenson left and his successor was uninterested in the topic, uh, Georgetown was setting up a new center, the Berkeley Center. Uh, so I moved to Georgetown. Catherine, you bring up so many uh, fascinating points, but I wanted to follow up on something in particular. You, In your career, you've navigated these two very different worlds. You have the worlds of development organizations where the operative terms are, are technocratic in nature. So development impact, uh, project development objectives, activities, results frameworks, and, and so on. What are some of the operative terms that you see in religious organizations? Uh, how do they think about their work? It's a, that's a very good and very difficult question. Um, one of the terms that is being used a lot these days is dignity. Uh, is, and it does come back to what is a fundamental issue in human rights, which is that first of all, people are all human. Um, I really balk at the idea that in 2021, we need to remember that human beings are human, um, but it does come to the basic issue of equality and inequality and what that actually means in terms of opportunity. So this question of dignity is one that is sometimes used by people who are uncomfortable with speaking about human rights. Um, another word that's being used quite a bit is flourishing. So what does flourishing mean exactly? Um, it, it does refer both to the individual, the development of individual capacities, but also uh, to the community. Uh, and that is sometimes seen as an area of tension. Uh, in other words, do you focus on, on the individual or on the community, which is another, another topic. Uh, but the question more and more, um, I, I think I would take issue with the idea that the development world focuses solely or primarily on the technocratic and the measurement. Uh, but it is a part of the difficult discourse often. Um, and one of my senses is that in, in many ways, the ethical foundation of the World Bank is fairness. Um, it is 
the idea that there should be opportunity for all, but that's often reflected in numbers. So, for example, you know, which country um, gets more points and therefore what should be its allocation of subsidized funding? That doesn't sound terribly ethical, but the underlying idea is, is a sense of fairness. And it also comes back to something that is, is a truism that has been said so many times that it seems ridiculous to say it again, but that for most of human history, most people were poor. And there was really not very much prospect that people would become much more prosperous or they would have better lives. Very few people were educated. There was very little health care. Children died. Uh, but really, within the last um, half century to a century, we've seen a complete shift where we know that it is possible for all people who are born, every child that's born, to lead a decent life, to lead, to have opportunities. Uh, and with that change, charity changes its character, rights changes their character. And as I would see it, um, and many others do, it means that we collectively, as well as individually, have a responsibility to do something about it. What we do about it is another issue, um, but it is clear that it is our responsibility to try to translate that possibility for development, if you call it in a lump, a big lump, into some kind of reality. Absolutely, and and and, uh, and it's interesting, as you say, that that of course the foundational principles of a lot of these organizations and World Bank being maybe the first and the largest among them is 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 fairness, which is ultimately an ethical foundation. But the, the there is another interesting level to that where it, it is also not just about the organization, but but about the people inside the organization. Um, and so, and, and, and they are ultimately the people who are in the field, who execute the projects, who plan the projects, who decide what numbers, as you mentioned, will allocate, you know, the, the, the concessional funding to, to what countries. And so, given the complexities of the world today, what would you say are the marks of an ethical development practitioner? An ethical development practitioner, um, first of all, I think there has to be a broad commitment to listening and to, to appreciating the complexity of the situations and issues that one is dealing with. Um, I think clearly somebody who, let's say, is a very good port engineer uh, will approach the development of a port um, with a fair amount of confidence that they know what they're doing and in the in the ways in which that port can be developed. But even even there, the decisions are made within a context which is specific to a given situation. But when you come to education, health agriculture, urban development, uh, uh, transport networks, uh, gender uh, support, gender legal, legal, legal um, governance issues. Uh, I think that the appreciation for 
the fact that there is not one single way, that there are multiple modernities, as we call it, and that um, the it's a constant tension between individual histories and cultures and some of the lessons that um, that we see at the at the global level. So I think that an ethical development specialist needs to start with curiosity, humility, uh, but also with um, with a, a rigorous sense, analytic sense of being willing to go deeply into issues side by side the people they're working with. Actually, I, I had a follow up on that, Catherine. Um, I was wondering, did you notice any significant differences in the ways in which development organizations and religious organizations challenge established orthodoxies? I'm asking because you've mentioned quite a couple of times uh, curiosity. And part of that involves uh, looking at the world around you, um, sometimes with a critical eye and saying, well, this doesn't make sense to me. Why is that happening? So how can we do better? So any major differences between how these two worlds challenge uh, what generally is considered um, that, that works? Well, I think <laughs> all of us have some kind of a of an ethical compass that we get from someplace, you know, from our families or community. Um, many of us also have a disciplinary focus. Um, in other words, we've been trained as an economist or as a theologian or as an engineer or whatever, whatever it is. Um, and I would not, I would certainly not argue that either someone working in a development institution or someone in a religious institution is more or less open than the other. In fact, I think one of the ingredients, one of the qualities that we need to nurture uh, is this sense of, of openness and curiosity. Um, people do often approach what they see as the model of development with quite firm attitudes. Uh, they think it's either right or wrong, and they may find, for example, deep suspicion of public sector, that no, no public sector institution could possibly be efficient because government um, is, by definition, inefficient. Um, you would also have attitudes that anyone who is working in the private sector is motivated by greed. Why else would you work in the public sector except to make money and money is about greed, etc.? All of those attitudes are way overstated, obviously. Um, so, uh, so one of the ironies in what people say often about the World Bank is that they will describe the World Bank in very religious terms. Of course, as you know, people in the World Bank go on missions, um, but they also are described as um, rigid, um, as following a doctrine, even a doctrine that has unseen forces at work, um, the invisible hand of the market, uh, that they are dogmatic, that they preach, etc. And it's, I think it's an irony uh, that those terms are so often applied to people who are seen as, as coming with such a strong framework, mental framework, and such strong attitudes that they are often unable to see and hear the perspectives of other people. 
I mean, I've been uh, one one experience I remember very well was in Morocco. One of my the interesting things I did was working for on the Fez Festival of Global Sacred Music, which had the ideal of bringing people together and changing and opening their hearts with with music. Uh, but the Fez Festival also had a forum which was trying to build on that to help people to think and act in different ways. But I remember one particular event, which was uh, around environment issues. And you had one person on a panel who said that, uh, imagine China where every family has a refrigerator and a car. And later in the discussion, another person on the same panel said, imagine China where every family has a refrigerator and a car. And leaving aside the fact that the two people on the panel, two men, let's be clear, had not even heard each other um, because they weren't really listening to other people on the panel. But one of them was a senior official of an UN agency who saw that as the ideal, that everyone in China would have the car and the refrigerator, whereas the other person saw that as the end of the world, uh, that this would destroy the environment. Uh, so, so you, it, it illustrates to my mind, um, both some of the dilemmas of pe having people communicate, even in that setting, uh, when, when they may be using the same words, but meaning something very different. Your example about the environment made me think about homo economicus and how faith-based preferences are mostly lacking from rational choice models taught in econ courses. So I was wondering what's your experience with experts, with people um, with very disciplinary, very specific disciplinary focus in a technical field who usually place great value on measurement and on numbers and then their ability to actually integrate faith um, into their thinking, into their mental frameworks. You mentioned earlier that the notion of fairness is opportunity for all often ends up uh, reflected in numbers or being about the numbers. Do you have any stories where disciplinary focus and faith cross paths? The um, first, um, I think fairness is not necessarily linked directly to numbers, um, but it does reflect a broader concern that we need to be rigorous and that rigor often translates into what we measure and how we measure it. So one of the, one of the concerns that I've had for a long time is that every single day or even every minute, you can see how the price of stocks of tens of thousands of companies are measured. And yet, when you need to know how many children die, which is one of the ways in which you can see what happens with a crisis, we have no way of collecting data um, quickly and at a global level on something as important as infant mortality, much less uh, performance in education, for example. Uh, so you, you see this idea that we treasure what we measure, we measure what we treasure, uh, and it has not taken us far enough into some of the human aspects of development. So I think that that's um, clearly uh, clearly one of the one of the um, one of the concerns and issues that we have. 
Um, I've lost track of your question now. What were you asking about again? Just quickly remind me and I'll try to. Whether you have an example of either success or failure of experts to incorporate faith into their pencil frameworks. Well, one of the issues that we're dealing with here, and I think it does come into the questions of fragility too, is how far people are operating on stereotypes of the other. I mean, we've already heard some stereotypes about people who work in development institutions like the World Bank, that all they care about is numbers and presumably they care about their promotions and their incentives are about their promotions and um, et cetera, et cetera. They're, they're within their discipline, uh, unable to see very far beyond it. And on the other side, you have people the the stereotypes of religious people, religiously inspired people who are basically pretty irrational, um, who are conservative. That's another um, stereotype uh, that they um, are uh, patriarchal um, against women's rights, etc. Um, and I, th- I don't think I need to tell you or anyone who's listening that it's far more complicated than that. And obviously, we're seeing that right now in spades in the COVID crisis. Um, and let's take doctors. There are many doctors who are very religious. Um, that doesn't mean that they're any less committed to the principles of medicine um, and to having been to medical school and having had to, to deal with this than anyone else. And we're seeing that now that the vast majority of religious professionals, uh, let's, um, are very, uh, have as much respect for science as anyone else. And that's clearly, um, clearly an important factor. And now with the vaccine hesitancy, um, Religious actors from the Pope to very local parishes are speaking out for the COVID regulations, for uh, the necessary restrictions on movement, on gatherings, uh, on practices, etc. And they do it in ways that may be far more effective than even a Dr. Fauci or Francis Collins or some of the other other leaders. So often we're dealing in, in both of these, first with stereotypes, which are not terribly useful, we all know, even though they may have some, some whiff of reality somewhere, uh, but we are also dealing with minorities. And some of the religious um, hesitations on vaccine, uh, vaccination, COVID vaccination, uh, is really a, a pretty small minority. It's both a minority of the people who are hesitant to be vaccinated, who you, who would in polls give religion as the, as the reason. Uh, but it's also a very uh, smaller percentages within any given community. I mean, there are some exceptions. Um, the, one of the concerns this week is the uh, high percentage of white evangelicals who are hesitant to be vaccinated and trying to come up with strategies that will address their their concerns, whether it's um, that they're afraid of side effects or that they are genuinely convinced that somehow getting vaccinated will be the mark, give them the mark of the beast um, from revelation. Uh, so all of these, um, these, um, these rather complex 
intricacies of what people believe, why they believe it, um, how you change their minds, uh, whether they might have some insight that we lack. All of those are some of the questions that we need to be asking. Yeah, and it's 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 fascinating that we get into the COVID pandemic and in, in particular the vaccine side of things because I know that you're very involved in the work to leverage the networks of interfaith organizations across the world to improve the the levels of inoculation, etc. And there are obviously many ethical dilemmas we've seen them you know the world attempting to solve them through the COVAX facility through various other um, practical solutions what are some of the ones that you're seeing the interfaith community bringing to the table that other areas of society are are unable or perhaps unwilling to do well i've been hesitant as you've seen to give any particular characteristics to either development specialists or to uh, religiously driven people. But there is one area that I think is is a very clear one, uh, and that is communication. And following in the footsteps of an effective pastor is a sobering and humbling experience. Uh, and there's a great deal that we can learn from the communication skills uh, of many of these religious leaders. They, they have a, a gift of, uh, of translating ideas into terms that people understand, etc. So that's been very important is for them to take even the simplest messages like wash your hands and turn that into something that has some religious meaning. I think another issue that is, is also complicated and that again relates to fragility is that many different surveys, as well as common sense and anecdotes, etc., suggest that trust levels are very important. In other words, who do people trust? And that when surveys are taken, very often it is the religious actors, the religious leaders, who score the highest in trust. Now, what are they trusted for? Why are they trusted? Are there religious leaders who are not trusted? Of course. Um, but in general, it is, um, you could describe it as a capital resource, that um, it, is, it is something that can be very critical. And so that is what, for example, in the United States, in black communities, um, there is between the White House and, and these different groups, um, an effort to enlist some black pastors and uh, also Hispanic pastors, um, Latinx um, in um, speaking out to their communities, whether they're modeling behavior or whether they are um, giving messages on, on video, on podcasts, you name it. Um, there is, um, um, it is a major focus uh, at the moment because until we reach certain levels of vaccination, uh, we don't have a, a very plausible path out of where we are now. And it's very important in some of the most conflict-ridden, um, uh, fragile situations that it is often, first of all, the religious communities that are the last ones left behind. Uh, they Many of them do leave, but there are also many who stay behind, even in the most, uh, in the most um, frightening um, and unstable situations. 
Uh, and very often they have the courage and the knowledge and the trust of the communities because they have been there and have been willing to uh, to continue their work um, with faith in the people that they work with in the communities. Catherine, you've mentioned a few times uh, perhaps the, the key word that really drives um, our podcast, which is, of course, fragility. So I wanted to ask you, based on all of your experience working with the World Bank, working with uh, other development organizations, and, of course, working with religious organizations, what is fragility to you? How do you define that concept? I, I guess what one often would want to do is in, in looking at a complex term, because fragility is a very complex term. It's used in many different ways by different people. I think it's also, it's often worthwhile to look at the opposite. So what is the opposite? So the opposite is our ideal, well-governed society uh, with, a, with a responsible, uh, efficient state uh, with um, some kind of conflict management processes within a society that allow differences of view to be aired openly, uh, but also um, dealt with in some way. So I think if you applied any of those criteria to the United States today, we wouldn't do very well, which suggests that we are living in a fragile society, which I would say is certainly true. Um, in the development context, I think the term is used in a somewhat different way. And putting it crudely and going back, for example, to the LICA studies, that was low-income countries under stress, one of the worst acronyms around, but still, um, that are now conflict, fragile states, um, poorly performing states, etc. cetera, number. Um, but it is essentially that in some countries, things seem to be going pretty well. Uh, and in fact, sort of the idea now that you have poor countries and rich countries is nonsensical. In fact, the World Bank is trying to stop using the term developing countries because it no longer has any meaning. But you do have a number of countries which have made remarkable progress, which have governments which are... Uh, you know, reason, working reasonably well, um, etc. Uh, but you also have a number of countries that are left behind, and some of them seem to be perennially left behind. I'm going to cite at least one or two examples, but Haiti is clearly one where it baffles people how so many wonderful ideas and wonderful people have not been able to resolve the issues there. Um, I worked for a long time on DRC, um, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Zaire at the time, uh, which is another country that just has so many issues and so many problems that anything that you could describe as normal investment criteria, normal educational objectives, normal health objectives, uh, transport, etc., has to be looked at in a different way because of the weakness of the institutions and the level of tensions within the society. Catherine, you've just mentioned something that um, points straight to my next question. What is, in your view, the relationship between a fragile state and a fragile society? I think the two are some sort of symbiotic 
relationships. I think you do have a few situations of a fragile society where there's a strong government that's able to hold things together. Uh, and you have situations of very weak governments that seem to, um, seem to be successful. So an example of the latter, which is being written about in The Economist and others, is Bangladesh, where the basic view is that there's really been quite remarkable success in Bangladesh, despite weaknesses in the government. So that that is, um, you know, there also are lots of signs of fragility in Bangladesh um, and plenty of, of uncertainties that lie ahead, not least of them environmental challenges, but also tensions within the society. Um, I think that the um, uh, Rwanda is an example now, perhaps, of a country that the government seems to be uh, very cl have clear objectives, um, be respected by a lot of people from outside, but it's a deeply troubled society, I think, in many ways. Um, and so it, both of those cases raise interesting questions about what will happen next. But I, I think clearly when we're talking about fragility, we're talking about degrees and we're talking about different parts of a country or society. In other words, you may have some that are working very well. I know in Cambodia, for example, the water system in Phnom Penh was cited for a long time as a remarkably efficient organization with um, examples of leadership, whereas Cambodia has come out of one of the most awful genocides um, in human history and is in many ways also a very troubled society with very weak governance, etc. So I think it's, um, it, it's not uh, sort of lumping countries into fragile and not fragile is not terribly helpful. But it is a problem that we've worked with for a long time. And you, it, it, no, no project can succeed um, in, in a failed society. I mean, and no leadership can succeed in a, in a totally failed society. So, um, and it means that there are so many hopes that are dashed, uh, in these, in these, uh, situations. One of the things I learned, um, with bitter experience is that it can take years to build an institution and it can take hours to destroy them. So this, uh, the, the question of, of finding enough stable ground that you're able to, to work, uh, in some, you know, law and order, um, um, education systems, health systems that allow children to grow up and to, uh, to succeed. All of those are, are very important and are obviously very difficult when there's a war going on or when there's bitter tension. Uh, and conflict within a society. You mentioned earlier that no leadership can succeed in a totally failed society. So I was wondering, how can faith help create a more resilient society? Well, I would never lump faith as one thing. So I think, oh, and let's, let's be clear. When we're talking about religious adherence, um, the Pew estimate that many use, including me, is that 84% of the world's population has some religious affiliation. 
So that's the large majority. And the numbers, I discover new religious traditions every day. Um, so I think trying to ascribe anything to religious belief or to religious institutions will get you into deep trouble very quickly. Uh, I don't, and I think there are very fine lines. As someone said once, everyone has faith. The question is just what they have faith in, which sort of leads you into what are, what are the core values that are driving an individual? Um, even the tensions among the values that are driving them. Uh, so, um, I think um, Hans Küng, who was a Swiss theologian, Catholic theologian, died this week. Uh, and he uh, spent a lot of time working on a global ethic, on looking at all of the world's great religious traditions and seeking to draw out some basic principles. And, of course, the idea was that there are some basic principles. Um, Karen Armstrong won the... Was it the Google Award um, for a Charter of Compassion, uh, which essentially is built on, on something that is pretty common among all religious traditions, which is the golden rule. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or do not do unto others as you would not have them do unto you. Um, so all of those are sort of very basic principles do seem to and, and I think the way we put it often is that it, it speaks to the better angels of people. I remember that as a child and even with my own children. You know, you always say, well, you have very good instincts and maybe you have bad instincts and let's try to keep these two in balance in some way. Um, and I think that that's partly what, what we're looking to in religious teachings and the kind of communities that that are represented by religious communities that they pass on and they exemplify through stories, through teaching, through parables, through so, so many others, the what is best. So it's interesting. You, I don't know how many of you have read the newest encyclical um, of Pope Francis, but it's Fratelli Tutti. Um, which unfortunately is brothers all, but we do need to include sisters all. Um, but a lot of it is built around the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, which is a parable about pluralism. It is a parable about caring for your neighbor, um, taking care of your neighbor, being willing to go out of your way um, to support um, another human being, even one you don't know and who comes from a different tradition, a different uh, part of the world. Uh, so that those good instincts, uh, the better angels, I think, are what we're all looking for. Yeah, I I, uh, I completely agree. I mean, coming as as we have discussed before, uh, Catherine, uh, me coming from a Sweden, which is a very secularized society, I have had very little interaction with religion, uh, except for newspaper headlines and news clips on TV and various other shock-focused outlets, let's say. And so for someone like me, especially, you know, who, 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 who was still fairly small at the time of, of, the, of 
religion and faith has been something that I don't necessarily have thought of as a, as a positive force. So for my generation and, and, and for, for the generations who have grown up with headlines of religious extremism and, and other negative forces, how can we help change and transform that narrative um, and really, as you say, speak to the better angels, but really bring, bring the better angels into the headlines, if you will, um, as well. Um, I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, the term that we use on that um, is religious literacy. And it does speak to a sort of historic fact, which is, um, you know, in the United States, let's say. And, but I suspect in Sweden and probably in Romania, it wasn't that long ago that children's primary textbooks from the, the way they learned to read had a lot of religious language in them. Um, that was certainly the way primers were in the United States. Um, and so everyone grew up knowing about Jonah and the whale and, um, you know, Jacob's coat and uh, the Noah and the ark and both the good and the bad stories. I mean, one of the bad stories, um, somebody reminds us in this brotherhood and uh, sisterhood is that the first sort of tale of, of a family was one brother killing the other, Cain killing Abel. So, um, but it, it was part of the, of the common language and the common understanding. And that has changed dramatically. Uh, in much of the world. Obviously, communism had a big part of that, um, but so did the secularization, so did, um, so did the fights about separation of church and state. And so I know certainly in my graduate school, I don't recollect even one mention of, um, of religion in the teaching at, at college or graduate. No, college I did have a course. I, I still, we still had required Bible at the time, but, um, most people have very, very little understanding, even of their own religion. There's a very, a Stephen Prothero's book on religious illiteracy has very sobering statistics on how little people know. Um, and that's true in, in many places. So a lot of development specialists really have very limited knowledge and they don't know where to start in this incredibly complicated world of who do you who do you talk to? And they may start with very strong prejudices, the kind you describe, where the issues of extremism um, and um, and particularly uh, extremist Islam um, are are widely circulated. So, what is the best way to have to to encourage a religious literacy, which? In plural societies is very important. Um, people are living side by side with people from very different traditions. Uh, and at least having a basic knowledge of them, I think is, is, is something that needs to be seen as part of a, of a basic education and certainly for a development specialist. But of course, nobody wants to go back to school. So finding ways to translate this religious literacy into principle. So Madeleine Albright wrote the book, The Mighty and the Almighty, uh, which is basically saying when she was in the State Department, the Secretary of State in the United States, she, um, she had no really good advisors on religious dimensions. And she, has, she says very clearly that there are a lot of decisions that suffered from that lack. And Clinton has said basically the same thing. So 
uh, the question of, of how you introduce this in a way that is, that is nonpartisan. In other words, you don't, because some of, some religion is very partisan. Um, it is, and um, we did a lot of um, meetings and discussions with people in different parts of the world. And one of the deepest concerns uh, was about proselytism. Because people see the effort to convert others as about power and about money. Uh, and particularly when it comes into the development world, that's very damaging um, because it can involve quid pro quos. Um, we all know in humanitarianism that neutrality and openness to all is a vital principle. But you need to find ways to translate that more into development projects as well. Uh, so that you uh, you have um, you have a, 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 a more a more open ground. So obviously, one of the things we're looking for is the best of religion, which is people these people who are so deeply committed, who have decades of experience, who know the vulnerabilities of communities, who care. I mean, caring, who have compassion. Uh, who have empathy, all of these qualities that we're looking for. Um, and we need to find ways to navigate some of the uh, areas that we're much less comfortable with. I'm much less comfortable with. I'm, I have very little capacity to open my heart and mind to patriarchal views, particularly when they support violence against women, domestic violence. Uh, or abuse of children, um, a corporal punishment, which is, again, you know, these are uh, bondage of various kinds. These are sort of parts of, of human history, parts of human tradition, even human nature. Um, but, you know, we need to find, find ways to navigate. And the first thing is to, is to open up to learning and to, to have the curiosity about how this works. You have already touched on this, and it's a pretty difficult topic, but I wanted to return to the impact of various religious practices on the less powerful members of society, women and children. Some examples that come to mind are things like FGM or forced and child marriage. So I was wondering, how do we navigate those situations where faith or organized religion actually harms women and children? Um. Well, as, as always in working with different groups, to some extent, one does have to have a red line. And one of the red lines is advocating violence in general. <laughs> Another one, um, I think, is, uh, is, is around children uh, and the treatment of children. Even recognizing, I mean, again, we need to recognize that our attitudes towards protection of children and their vulnerability is not something that all societies have had throughout history. Uh, so we need to keep that in mind. Um, and I know, for example, in Kenya and other countries, issues of corporal punishment are very difficult uh, for people because uh, many are very convinced that without corporal punishment, children will grow up spoiled. Uh, but, but corporal punishment can be a, f a red line um, and uh, domestic, well, domestic violence is in a way another issue because I think it's all societies at all times um, 
the saddest number that I've read is that half of the women who have suffered domestic violence have never spoken about it to a living soul. In other words, it's a lonely, bitterly lonely um, problem that people live with. So one does need to decide. Now, you know, I'm working a lot in West Africa on issues of family planning, largely in Muslim societies. Um, and, you know, the a, a red line for them is talking about abortion. But to give you an idea of the kinds of issues that we face is that um, the, the teachings of the religious leaders and ones they feel strongly about is that sex outside marriage is unacceptable. So you can't speak about sex outside marriage. But what that means is that even in focus groups, they are resistant to having um, uh, unmarried people being part or were. So we've made progress in, in, finding ways to speak about it. And interestingly, one of the concerns that they have is that as long as you don't speak about it, you can actually do something. So you've got to navigate that line. But the main concern, a practical concern, is that the government's worry and concern about religious attitudes towards um, uh, contraception and education for uh, adolescence is that they're very reluctant to have um, sex education uh, because of the belief that it will lead to promiscuity. And, and yet, um, adolescent pregnancy is a major problem. And um, it, you know, in one country, there's been a rise in reported cases of infanticide, which is a testimony to the desperation of young women um, who get pregnant, who have their families throw them out, um, the man involved disappears. Uh, so, uh, so it's um, it, it's a real problem. Let's put it this way, and we we're working there to try to to navigate it through the miracle which we always talk about, which is dialogue, which is being open to trying to have a discussion, bringing facts to the table, experience from other countries, etc. Catherine, we've talked so far um, a lot about dialogue between um, religious organizations, obviously, and development organizations. And I think for many of our listeners and, and viewers who are interested in development um, and conflict, they have a good sense of what happens during the big meetings of the development and let's say conflict prevention world. So whether it's the um, annual meetings of the World Bank or spring meetings, whether it's the UN General Assembly, um, Congress and, and, and other places, can you give us a sense also uh, what happens when different religious organizations meet? Uh, what do they talk about? Um, do they address questions of doctrine? Um, who are the characters and, and what are some of their motivations? Well, let me divide this into two parts. So <laughs> the first is a constant concern uh, about the interreligious meetings and worlds, which is that people are only interested in bad news and violence. Uh, as we know, blood sells. Uh, and therefore, when there are sort of remarkable meetings where people come together who have been killing each other for generations, 
it barely gets um, a paragraph in the newspaper. So this question of how do you make peace building work, for example, um, that doesn't really have a sharp headline, how do you make it interesting? So that's a sort of constant concern, which goes way beyond. I think people in development might say something of the same, that the only the only stories that are going to sell are going to be stories about failed projects. Um, the stories about successful programs and projects are pretty boring. So, uh, so it, it, what is it? The Tolstoy, you know, that, that all happy families are pretty much the same, but unhappy families are, are interesting, let's say, and different in their own ways. Now, you were also asking sort of what are the topics of discussion, and there is a huge range. Uh, there are centuries of history of dialogue about Christology, about um, any topic in theology, and some of them are institutionalized. So I remember being present um, in um, Canterbury, England, when there was an Orthodox Anglican dialogue. Um, and this had it, generations, I mean, probably centuries of history of discussion about, um, about a whole range of theological issues uh, with, the idea of, with the idea of unity, of breaking down. Um, and then there are also a lot of different efforts that essentially come out of a crisis. So a mosque is bombed or a church is destroyed and the religious leaders from the different communities come together both to show their, their sense of compassion, but also to look at what might've been the underlying grievances, um, whether it's land issues or whether it's, um, um, some revenge for some event that happened in the past. And there's a lot of discussion about reconciliation of what does reconciliation mean and how do you, how do you navigate between forgiveness and reconciliation and respect and, and so forth. So, um, the, the, the various dialogue efforts are very diverse. Um, and, um, some of them are very courageous. Um, some of them tackle um, the, some of the most difficult issues. Um, there, there are practices, for example, scriptural reasoning, which essentially works with very specific texts to, um, to try to show both the similarities and the differences. So, um, the um, one of the last, I mean, there's some huge meetings. There's something called the Parliament of the World's Religions, which at some times is met every five years at one point, and you know they had ten thousand people. With the so you have the extraordinary diversity of humanity right on display. I mean, I one of the things I want to write a book about someday is hats um, and headdresses. I mean, just the this simple diversity. Um, which is which is modern. I mean, it's today. It's authentic. It's not costumes. It's this is the um, the way it is. Um, but some of these meetings have a very wide range of topics of discussion. In in Germany, the um, re uh, Religions for Peace Assembly met um, in Lindau um, uh, in August 2019. 
and I was part of that, and I had prepared a paper for them on um, just and harmonious societies, which was looking at some of these issues of governance, but also of peace and conflict and conflict resolution and what seem to be approaches um, and that are, that are working better than others. It, it's, it's fascinating, really, the, the wealth of tools and values and approaches that the world of faith and religion bring to the world of development. And when you started working on connecting these two worlds, development hadn't wasn't hadn't been willing to or hadn't dared to or hadn't known about we can we can leave that unsaid uh how to connect with religion and that since then it's 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 received both both achieved both prominence and importance if you think about the development institutions today the world bank the other development banks etc is there another um, society? Is there another community? Is there another phenomenon like faith and religion that the development world hasn't yet dared to, wanted to, been able to connect with that you think could multiply its efforts in the way that religion has done? That's a good question. Um, I doubt that there's anything that's quite the historic depth um, and size and complexity of the religious worlds. Uh, and that has its own history of why there's separation. Um, I mean, the wars of religion in Europe and uh, some of the, some of the violent incidents we see today are not, you don't have to look very far to understand what, what makes people skeptical. Um, I'm trying to think of what others might be. I mean, clearly the concerns with learning from indigenous peoples might have some parallels. Um, I think that the gender discovery of sort of looking at, at these issues from, um, through a gender lens, um, is, um, there, there's a lot of discussion now and it's complicated of, of hearing children's voices as well as young people's voices. And how do you do that in, in meaningful ways, um, looking, looking across different societies and cultures? So I think those are, those are um, I'm trying to think of another sort of swath of society. We, maybe if we learn that, that whales can really speak to each other or that, uh, I mean, these are, I'm, I'm not trying to be trivial. I'm just saying that there are, one of the things that we we need to remember is that there are very different ways of looking at life depending on where you start and and who you are and um certainly that i mean i would not say and you've heard me say this before i really do not think that there is a difference between someone who is quote religious says they're a person of faith which i dislike as a term um, and someone who is not religious. Um, but, uh, but it certainly does reveal the enormous complexity, uh, that is part of history and part, it's also part of the cultural heritage that someone comes with. And, um, and it does, I think, help to shape 
the way they see their values compass. You know, what is it that they see as the lines? What are the what are the priorities they have in life? Um, what is it that they dream about? What is it that they hope to achieve? That, that's a that's a fascinating way, I think, to uh, to start wrapping up this interview uh, with Catherine Marshall. It's been a wide ranging interviews. We've crossed over the topics of ethics, religion, development, and I think some of the key things that 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 we hope our listeners can take away are these central value words of of compassion, of care, of empathy, and of curiosity about what we don't know yet, because who knows when we stumble as development practitioners on the next, you know, religion or the next other dimension that, that can really serve to, to, um, to elevate our work to, to the next, uh, to the next level. So thank you very much, Catherine, for joining us here. Um, and thank you to all our listeners for tuning in to F world, the fragility podcast, we hope that you found our conversation both interesting and inspirational. Uh, we hope that you will subscribe where you listen to podcasts. And if you want to know more about FWorld, please visit our website, f-world.org, and follow us on Twitter at FWorld. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you again for coming, Catherine. Well, thank you. It was a very interesting and challenging discussion. <laughs>